part of getting better and doing great things is operating on the edge of your comfort zone and doing things that you've never done before. And with that is going to come failure and loss and things not going the way you think they will. And that's fine. There's absolutely nothing wrong with that. But how you bounce back from that is the key part. Hi, it's Holly Ransom here. Welcome one and all to Coffee Pods, Fuel Your Difference, a podcast for the change makers and the game changers. This podcast is built around a simple hypothesis. How long does it take to learn from someone's lifetime of experience? Coffee. So in the time it takes us to share a cup of coffee with our guests or for you to enjoy one as you listen along, we're going to tap into the lifetime of experience of some truly remarkable people who've driven significant change. I'm a big believer that success leaves clues. And be it putting an audacious idea into action, shifting a team culture, or even a country's for that matter, or using their influence to drive progress, all our guests have powerful insights, pragmatic tips, and passionate calls to action that can help each of us to fuel the positive difference we're all working to create in our lives, organisations, and communities. I'm thrilled to introduce today's Coffee Pods guest, Stephen Moore, an Australian rugby union footballer who played super rugby for the Brumbies and the Queensland Reds and won 129 caps for Australia internationally, including as captain. Moore's actually the 14th most capped player of all time, has the second most test appearances for any Australian, and is the only Australian hooker to have played 100 tests. He's also the most capped Australian super rugby player of all time and is one of only two players in Australian rugby history to have achieved 100 tests and 150 super rugby appearances. As you'll see over the course of this coffee pod, one of the things that makes Stephen quite extraordinary is how considered and thoughtful he is. He has thought so much about leadership, cultural change, how it is you... uh, sustain elite performance over the medium and long term and this is honestly one of my favorite podcasts we've recorded yet in terms of the breadth of the knowledge uh, advice and topics that we cover i really hope you enjoy it here's stephen moore stephen moore thank you so much for joining us on coffee pods i'm thrilled to be able to have this chat with you um obviously recently hung up the boots from captaining the wallabies and as i've just found out stepped into the world of agriculture which i look forward to picking up a bit with you later But I guess I wanted to go back to where it all started and get a sense of whether rugby was always the path you were in pursuit of. Yeah, well, firstly, thanks for having me, Holly. It's a privilege to come on and uh, happy to share my my experience and and a few stories about how what my journey has been and and how I've learned from it, I suppose. So in terms of my rugby journey, I I don't really think I had ever planned to play professional rugby for as long as I did. I I left school in Brisbane and and went and studied science at, at the University of Queensland and it was there that I started playing rugby just for fun, really, which is probably why I always played but back then it was very much just for fun and and playing with my friends from uni really so on the back of that I started getting recognized I suppose and by talent people and that sort of stuff and and got an opportunity to to play with with the Reds and train with the Reds and and that's where my professional journey started so not something I ever planned and I, I do always get asked that by people, particularly parents who have kids at school, is what did you do when you're 13, 14 to realise your dream of, of playing professional rugby or playing for your country? And that that is way too early to be thinking about that stuff, you know. Mm-hmm. So I always tell them just enjoy what you do, uh, enjoy your time with your friends and, and make sure that whatever you're doing is just one part of your life, you know, that you have many different pieces to your life that, that you can enjoy and, and immerse yourself in. And that was advice I got and I think that's that's pretty good advice. 
from the early stages, were there mentors or people that played a pivotal role in your leadership development and helping you develop even that sort of mature view that you've just outlined now? Yeah, look, I think from the early days, it's your parents, it's your, your people at your school, I suppose, your teachers and, and your coaches. For me in rugby, it was my coaches. So coaches I had around that sort of late teens, early 20s were, were massively influential in, in, in my life and, um, you know, shaping my rugby career, but also me as a person. Uh, I remember some coaches I had at university that I've, I've remained very close with and, and remain in contact with from a personal level, but also as friends now. So, you know, mentors is probably a quite a broad term and, and that's a mixture of, of friends and and family and, and people in whatever area you're in or your chosen field that can help you along the way. So I was lucky that I had a lot of those people and on the flip side, I went out and really looked for those people and looked for advice, kept asking questions, surround yourself with people that, that can help you and that can offer advice and, and that's what I tried to do. That's something I've always been impressed by since we very first met is the diversity of people you surround yourself with and your eagerness to learn really broadly. I remember when we had a conversation not long after you'd become captain and you were just talking about the the range of inputs you were trying to get on uh, the cultural change conversation you were having and trying to drive at rugby. So what gave you that idea? Because that's not a trait that you see in every leader. You can see some that are quite narrow in their influences and, and probably not as open to particularly perspective from outside industry. Yeah, look, I think that's that's probably something that I, I've always been interested in. I, I, someone once said to me, just try and meet somebody new every day, you know, whether it's just to say hello in the street or to develop a, a long-standing relationship. I think it might have even been uh, something I read about Jack Nasser, who's the chairman of BHP or maybe just finished or, you know, anyway, recently finished. And he he said he tries to meet someone new every day. And I think that's really good advice. And, you know, it's a pretty simple thing to say. But if you if you try and do that, you, ultimately you surround yourself with a really vast spread of different people. And that's something I've always tried to do. The, the other thing, and I think it's particularly relevant to the work that you're doing, is when people talk about mentors, they always uh, think it's people that are older than them you know, significantly mm. older or I've tried now that I'm, you know, I'm 35 now. So I've tried to also have mentors, I suppose, that might be in their early 20s. And that was something that was very relevant to me when I was playing rugby. So most of my teammates would have been significantly younger than me by the end of my career. And that really opened my eyes up to the importance of looking both directions. So having having people that are obviously been there and been through the journey and done it is good. But then particularly in this day and age with the development and technology and, and everything like that and the social changes that we've seen, I think it's really important to also immerse yourself with people that are quite a bit younger and experienced in that demographic. And um, I think that for a leader is critical. I think that's such great advice. I wanted to ask you about sort of the the moment that you rose to captaincy. You're someone, and I loved the comments that came out uh, when people were, were farewelling you when you retired about how you'd really help to, I guess, encourage in the next generation the extraordinary amount of pride that should come with playing for your country. You're someone that wore the the jersey with a huge amount of pride and really led our country to an incredibly high standard and I think that's an absolute credit to you. So talk to us about that moment and was that daunting? Was that exciting and exhilarating? How did you feel and, and what were your priorities when you came into that role? 
Look, it was a great moment for me in, in my life and my career. I, I remember getting a call from Ewan McKenzie, who was the coach at the time, and he asked me to fly to Sydney to, to meet him. And of all places, we actually met at Krispy Kremes there just near the airport. <laughs> you didn't. That's right, yeah. So I haven't told many people this, but it's probably <laughs> it's not that big a deal, I suppose. Um, so I flew down from Brisbane and I was flying straight back. So I, I thought you know, something like that might, might be going to happen. Uh, so it was just the nearest place we could stop and get a coffee and, and we did that. So, yeah, he took me into Krispy Kremes and, of course, I only had a coffee. I didn't need anything else in there. No, of course not. An elite uh, athlete. I, I thought it might have been a test initially. But, <laughs> yeah, so he asked me then to, to be captain of, of the Wallabies and, and uh, you know, a hugely proud moment for me and for my family and something I, I'd always, I suppose, if I'm being honest, I would have probably liked the opportunity a little bit earlier in my career and mm-hmm. that's just, I, I guess, being brutally honest and that, you know, things happen and coaches, uh, you know, go in different directions and I did have a lot of coaches in my career. So, you know, different coaches have different ideas about things so I've got no, absolutely no dramas with that and, I guess the the way that my captaincy started was less than ideal. Uh, getting injured in the, the first couple of minutes of, of my first test was something no, nobody probably plans for, but uh, no, it happened. Would wish it for happened. That yeah, yeah, that's right. That's the way the game is, and you know, it was unlucky, I suppose. But that's that's the game, and that's that's something that happens. And you move on. You you, you put it all in perspective pretty quickly, which is what I tried to do. But yeah, coming back to the initial announcement, I suppose. Playing for your country is, is something, and I tried to probably impart this on on my teammates over my journey. You have the capacity when you're representing your country to change people's lives. So, not many people in their life get that opportunity. So, you know, we get the opportunity every time we pull that jersey on, representing our country, to make people feel proud, feel happy, feel disappointed. You change people's lives. Like people get up the next day feeling that emotion you know Mm. wearing their jersey down to the beach or whatever it might be and feeling connected and and feeling very proud of of the people that are representing them so that's a very powerful and important you know responsibility and and I took that very seriously and I really love that that I could do that in my career. I love the way you articulated that. I got quite literally got goosebumps listening to it. I think people uh, increasingly are starting to appreciate the incredibly powerful cultural role that sport plays in uniting people, in giving them a, a shared sense of pride and collective joy uh, and collective yeah. heartbreak on the flip side as well. Yeah, I think so. And, and the other important point is that we probably took for granted what it meant to play for Australia, or, you know, not, not in rugby, in any different sport. And when I looked around the room, there were so many of our people in the room that actually weren't from that traditional Australian upbringing and, and I was one of them. So I was born in Saudi Arabia to Irish parents. I only came to Australia when I was five. So I, I would have probably grown up probably supporting Ireland more than Australia for my first few years anyway. So, you know, we, we had people from Fiji, from New Zealand, born in Europe, Africa. So we actually took for granted that no, just saying let's go out and play for Australia actually meant something to people, but we had to really define what it meant for us as a team. So, and that means many different things to many people. So we, we took time to actually get to know each other, each other's backgrounds, what playing for Wallabies and for Australia meant to each other. And I think that was a, a tremendously powerful journey that we went down that really brought us together and, and got to understand each other even greater. It's probably taking a slight step back because I, I think this is probably something that you did stepping into captaincy. But I wanted to ask sort of how you would describe the culture of 
the Wallabies team or Australian rugby when you came into captaincy and what you sort of identified you you positively wanted to influence? Yeah, I think for me it was about I would have described that as a little bit loose, you know, just a, you know, it wasn't clear what was expected, what was what we were playing for, what resonated with individuals and us as a collective. I, I just thought that was a little bit undefined and I know Michael Checker who who was the coach at the time, you know, thought probably similar. I think uh, we had to spend time actually defining what our identity was and what we were playing for, what our purpose was to get up out of bed every day and and do what we do every day because the game is one part of the week, but the rest of it is just as important, probably more important. So we had to make sure there was a an intrinsic motivation, a purpose that you, when you get out of bed in the morning, you feel connected to that and you want to give over and above uh, because that's what it takes in any industry to take on your competitors you know that's it's pretty simple you know you need that discretionary effort over and above the the required to do great things so when we defined that it really helped us and and I'd say before that period there was a period where that was a little bit undefined and probably a little bit loose and there was probably also the teams around Australia maybe operate in isolation and that was probably the first time we've actually spent time defining a common purpose and it wasn't divided into, you know, Queensland, New South Wales, ACT, WA, Melbourne, those sort of factions, you know, it was a really united team and that helped us a lot. I can bet. And was that something that was a one-off exercise or was that then something that sort of became a a continual feature and almost a habit of what the team did when they came together and connected in in the training camps and on game day, match day, those sorts of things. Yeah, it became a common bond. You know, it was a it was an identity that we kept coming back to, and we could judge ourselves on on the field. And the way we sort of marked it was when we started to hear people in the public talking about things that we had defined as being important to us. That that's when I felt like we really had achieved our our aim so mm. things like um you know making everyone proud representing our country in a in the right way being humble and humility and everything like that goes with that being a physical team talking specifically now about rugby but when we started hearing those things cropping up in, in people's commentary on on our performances that that's when the real proof is in, in the pudding you know you, you start to to get that validation about what you're doing and and for people outside the group to notice that that's really powerful and and ultimately when you're playing for your country you want people to be proud of you not just on the field but off the field as well so I wanted people to feel that when they watch this play. I wanted to ask you you mentioned before you know you get a couple of minutes into your first game as captain you do your knee just a devastating moment and there are so many highs and lows involved in elite sport you've got wonderful world cup wins against arch rivals and you know great victories well across your career that we could highlight and call to we've also had some devastating losses where all of us that wear the the green and the gold were sort of sobbing with you for for not being able to get over the line in a particular moment how do you manage those challenging moments for yourself but also then when you're in a leadership capacity how do you actually lead a team through that and not not let them get demoralized or too disheartened by a setback or a loss yeah so I'll, I'll probably deal with the second question first and I think that is a really important component of leadership and in what we did you, you've got judged every weekend on your results so very publicly so, too 
very publicly and also there's no grey, you either win or lose. And mm. anyone who tries to blur that line, I never really thought like that. For me, it was win or lose. You know, you can you can have a loss and feel good that you played okay, but really it's, it's win-loss. That's the mark. So if we didn't win, you had to make sure that, for me, I, I always thought there should be a period of mourning as such. You know, it's probably not the right word, but just that period of, of hurt around a loss, particularly when you got your national colours on, just feel that pain that goes with, you know, losing something that you really badly want and you've worked hard for. But after that, and for me, it was probably the Sunday night after a Saturday game, I consciously tried to, to get myself back in a frame of mind of, of getting better, being positive. And as a leader, that is so important. So if something hasn't gone your way, you need to front up on the next day, show the right body language, communicate the right way, own your performance individually and also collectively, and then really uh, set your path on to go forward. And that can apply to anything in life. Being able to bounce back from failure is really, really important. And it, it probably isn't something that we naturally do that well. Mm. And I think that it's really important to be able to do that because part of getting better and doing great things is operating on the edge of your comfort zone and doing things that you've never done before. And with that is going to come failure and loss and things not going the way you think they will. And that's fine. There's absolutely nothing wrong with that. But how you bounce back from that is the key part. And I guess that is resilience. When you talk about that resilience, and it's a very widely used word, in a lot of different areas these days, but it is really how you bounce back from something not going your way. And um, that's something I think we generally need to all keep working on. And it's an interesting one too, isn't it? Because I can imagine coming into a team, particularly of elite athletes, and I've seen this with a few sporting organisations I've worked with, a lot of the time you've got players who have had unbelievably successful junior careers and all of a sudden the first time that they're really encountering perhaps the challenge of coming back from a serious injury or the difficulty of not being the best player on the ground or not getting the wins might be at that moment where they're in the national team with you. So you're dealing with yeah. almost these different resiliency thresholds amongst the group. How did you find you could help people to build that capacity that you're talking about to bounce back? Yeah, that's a really good question. And we see it a lot in rugby because nowadays kids come straight out of school, first 15, for example, into professional rugby environments. So often at these first 15 schoolboy rugby situations, they're put up on pedestals. They're like the heroes in the school and yep. they're probably, um, you know, they get validated like that all the time in their life at school. So you come out of that and you go into a, a full-time program where no one really thinks like that. And when you don't get what you want straight away or you don't achieve something immediately, you can tend to drop your bundle and or fall away or, you know, just not reach your potential, I suppose. So I think it comes back to firstly as a leader what what is your body language like what's your communication like spending time with the, with the young players to make them aware of the whole concept of resilience and that things aren't going to always go your way but but also having a culture where failure is acknowledged in a, in the right way and just having an open culture where you're encouraged to try things and if it doesn't work then it's not something that we're going to jump down on top of you about or it's not accepted or you know, because I think that's where you reach the great space, you know, is when you, you're you trying things that you haven't tried before and it's, it's accepted that they might not always go 
the way you think. And likewise, when you do have a win, that you celebrate it in the right way. That's as just as important because yep. people work hard for those moments and you need to make sure that they're acknowledged in the right way. Absolutely. And celebrating success is often completely underappreciated and underdone in a, in a lot of other environments. Probably naturally with sporting events, there's a bit more of the, yeah. the culmination yep. and the cheering and the excitement post a, a win or a final or a, a championship. But I, I completely agree with you there. That, and being able to draw on those moments in future to say, remember that game, remember when we got it over the line, that must That's have right. an enormous role in, in generating future belief. Yeah, absolutely. That's that's critical, and and that's what you play for is those moments. I always remember the the best times in my career were the times when we were away from home and we won a test match. You know, whether it was in South Africa or the UK or France or wherever it might be, just that moment in the dressing rooms after a test match like that, where you you've had a victory and you're celebrating just together, just with your teammates. And that's something that you play for. That's what you get out of bed for in the morning, those mm-hmm. moments. So really important to acknowledge those times. You know, and it is tough because we do talk a lot about humility and things like that now and not going over the top. And that's a fine line because you really do want to celebrate, but you do want to be respectful of of your opposition and the environment and what it looks like to the outside people. So, you know, if you look at some stuff that was reported around the ashes and things like that. You've that was just what got I was a bit, thinking of when you said that, yeah. Yeah, I think that's something you just have to be careful of, you know, that the optics around that for everyone. And you've also got to consider that in this day and age that everything is captured, you know, so there is no privacy of those moments is getting less and less. So we're operating in a completely different environment. I wanted to ask you about how you handle that. Even when you were talking before about sort of your own culture and relationship to failure and success. So you've got your own standards. You're trying to celebrate people living on the edge of their comfort zone, taking those risks in pursuit of excellence. How hard is it to maintain that sort of team definition when you've got all this public scrutiny, media criticism, social media coming in? And how do you kind of not let that overwhelm you or get the better of you? Yeah, that, that is very tough. And I know that, you know, in corporate environments as well, they're, they're probably grappling with the same type of issue. And, and I, the honest answer is I, I don't really have a solution for that yet that I've discovered. You know, my obvious solution is just don't, I would say to people, don't read it, don't engage in social media, but that's very short-sighted. You know, there, there's a lot of benefits to that stuff now that can help your engagement, your, your business. And then that is just how young people are growing up these days got technologies is an ever-increasing part of their life so look I think how you manage it I mean we would have things like you know no phones at meals and things like that just little things that that really help your culture and there's a lot of research around that concept of having a meal together and sharing that time together so we really treasured that time so that was our one thing was no phones at any type of meals so when you're at a meal you just hearing each other talk and sharing things and that was really special so having little things like that can really help but in terms of controlling technology and the influence of it if you look it's it's a case-by-case basis and and also it is a commercial reality of what we do now is Mm -hmm. that the consumer is paying for access to the inner sanctum and that's no greater example than the afl right of that i know you're, you're involved with that and the access that that the broadcasters have now to things like change rooms and that would have just never happened 
not that long ago either. The door would have been closed firmly on cameras coming into those environments. And to their credit, the AFL have embraced that. And I wouldn't have been someone who follows the game that closely, but I do enjoy seeing that that interaction and, and that inner sanctum, and I'm sure other people do as well. Mm, it's tricky, isn't it, from a, a player welfare standpoint, though, just making sure that people are getting the the right amount of separation. Like I find it interesting watching players who, you know, within five minutes after a game are already on their phones in the change yeah. rooms when the broadcasters are walking through. And instead of listening to the coaches' feedback on how they might have played, they're looking at their Instagram or Twitter to see what the general public have said about their performance. And it's very interesting, almost a you know, armchair coach that's coming into the equation yeah. more so than it probably ever has. Oh, yeah, very much so. You, you get that kind of feedback pretty quickly, good or yeah. bad. So mostly bad, you know. Like if someone's going to take the time to write something, you know, on whatever it might be, whatever platform, you know, most of the time it's reasonably negative stuff that they're going to, you know, come in with. That's just from my experience. There is, there is some positive stuff. But, I know I've read a bit about the Melbourne Storm and I think they have some things in place around that time after a game and, you know, use of mobiles and things like that. So those sort of things are are definitely in the picture. You know, you have to consider the impact that technology and and all this different social media has on your team dynamic. And Mm. and you've seen examples of young athletes getting off that stuff for that very reason. So I think that's a brave choice to do that uh, if you feel like it's having an impact. And I think the other part is that the role of people in that sports psychology space is evolving and really important. And I don't think as leaders we can pretend to know everything about that space. So I think it's important to equip yourself at the club level with the right tools and resources to handle and manage the issues that are cropping up around mental well-being and yeah. and, and psychology around sport and performance. So uh, that that is really key. I really stress that. I don't think all of our leaders know everything and and I think that's important to acknowledge. I wanted to ask you, you mentioned before how you had a lot of different coaches over the course of your career who all, you know, went in different directions slightly. I'm intrigued to hear about, I guess, what you learn about adaptiveness, but whether you learn as well that there were sort of core consistencies that needed needed to be there irrespective of who was leading to drive success. Yeah, I think Eddie Jones was my first coach for Australia. He's now coaching England and doing a great job. So he was someone who I learned a huge amount of in terms of uh, the detail required at that level to be successful. And I think that's something that really stayed with me through my career. And, and I had coaches that probably didn't have as much attention to detail and I probably struggled a little bit with that. So from my experience, that is key, just acknowledging that the impact of those one or two percent things mm. uh, that make a difference and thinking about things outside the box a little bit to get that advantage because you know ninety nine percent of people are doing the same thing, and no matter what industry you're in, it's the little the little bits that make the difference as as we all know. So firstly, acknowledging that, but then developing a culture where, People think that that stuff's important, you know, whether it's things like sleep, uh, recovery, nutrition, all those little things that probably aren't seen directly in a game of sport, but contribute into the, the end outcome and how important that stuff is. I always thought that stuff was very important. 
And I remember you making the comment to me a few years ago that it bewilders you that this is not a conversation that elite leaders in business are having, given what we know about performance and things like sleep and nutrition. That, yeah, it works on the footy field and the rugby field and whatever sporting context, but this is also applicable for elite performance in any environment. Yeah, that's right. I would have thought coming from a sporting background now, I still think in what I'm doing now, moving into the corporate world is important. You know, you need to get enough sleep. You need to eat the right stuff. You need to hydrate. All that stuff contributes to how well you can function no matter what you're doing. It doesn't have to be a, a massively physical exercise. It's it's just really important. So that whole well-being piece, I think, is starting to get understood a lot more and I, I know there's some great leaders in, in corporate Australia you know someone like Cindy Hook at Deloitte she, mm. she's very big on, on the whole concept of well-being and taking time out to look after your body and, and your mental well-being and and I think the best leaders actually make it almost compulsory uh, in what you do so they allow time and probably allow time in their own budgeting and things like that for this type of thing. So I really admire, you know, leaders that, that have found time for this and uh, I think that's an ever-increasingly important part of what we do. I wanted to ask you about how you mentally and I guess in your habits structured your response to your rehab when you did your knee because I think it, it coming back from something like that is a really interesting one because you talked before about how on the sporting field your performance is really public and there's no grey. You've got a black and white as to whether you won or lost and whether therefore you played well or not based on the stats. And then when you're off the park and you're training away from the main group and you're often on a six to 12-month recovery where Day by day, it can feel almost frustratingly inconsequential, the progress that you're making. How do you actually approach that effectively? Because I feel like a lot of leaders are dealing with these sorts of challenges where it's a long journey, they're not going to see the results overnight and they struggle to motivate themselves to keep chipping away at some of that more underground development work that they need to be doing. Yeah, Yeah, that's a good question. I think firstly for me, I, I tried to put in perspective really quickly so when I took a step back from the emotion around what happened and and you know first game as captain all that sort of stuff I stepped back and said look I've got I've been injured playing sport I've had the surgery two days later and now I've got a period of rehab until I'm able to potentially play again right so uh, when I when I put in that perspective I looked around at everything else I mean you only have to watch the news right to think that that is not a big deal in the scheme of things (laughs) You know, so I just thought, look, there's far more people around the world or even in my own little community that are doing it far tougher than I am. So, you know, once you get that perspective, actually, that really helped me. You know, I was probably caught up in my own little world there for a couple of days and then I really took a step back and thought, you know what, this is actually not too bad. And the other part of it I tried to do was, spend time doing some things that I couldn't do when I was playing rugby. So Mm -hmm. look at it from that um, sphere. So try and grow in an area that you couldn't previously do. If I was going to be traveling, playing rugby for the rest of that year, then I couldn't go and meet new people in a different industry, do a little bit of work here and there, maybe do some study, whatever it might be, do some charity stuff, whatever it might be. But just find some things that you couldn't do if you were playing rugby, you know, that, that fill your time. And that's probably a little bit what I'm trying to do now when I'm uh, retired. So doing things in those times where I'd normally be playing that I couldn't do before. So for me, it might be spending time with my family and, and just appreciating the things that you can do now that you couldn't do previously. So 
that that helped me a lot and I, I really try to immerse myself in some different things and and of course that that probably helped my rehab too and that's something I'm really passionate about in terms of young players now coming into sport at a professional level, I personally think that we make our young players spend far too much time at the club, whatever it might sport it might be. And I think we should be spending less time at the club and more time doing something else that fills a gap in your life, whether it's study, work, charity, social work. You know, we, we have a big Polynesian community that are very interested in social work and how that all works. So, I really do believe that we're we're letting down our young players by making them spend so long in that club environment. Mm, that's a really interesting perspective. Yeah, and it doesn't probably stack up in the commercial world, you know, in terms of sport and the, the money that some of these kids are now getting paid. And, you know, maybe it won't happen, but that's just something I think is worth trying, you know, because I'm just not sure at the moment we're producing the right type of person, you know, in our professional elite athlete development pathways and I think what I think about again coming from the perspective I think a lot about the player welfare side of things because I chair that subcommittee at Port Adelaide and when we look at what's happened in the athlete transition space and become a very public conversation in the last 24 months with the passing of um of one of your former colleagues Dan Vickerman I'm really igniting this conversation around are we setting up our athletes for success in life. I think what you're talking about there is an emerging conversation but one that we probably haven't focused on enough yet. Yeah, definitely. And, and also what, what does a professional athlete look like? You know, do we need to redefine that? Is it a, you know, someone who spends nine to five at one place and just I think we can get our physical training done in a lot less time than what we're taking at the moment. That's just something I think. And, you know, if you break it down for me at the club level, from my recent experience at the Queensland Reds, I thought, well, why don't we just try it? We couldn't do any worse than we did last year For in that example, right? So having these kids in here so long every day isn't actually helping us. So let's try something different. Now, that's one way of looking at it. It's so interesting though, isn't it? The fear of departing from what we know to be the convention of say how rugby's always worked and how it, we're seeing a similar thing in, in work. Like what do you mean people not at the office nine to five yeah. and you know that you're not spending 90% of time on the job and maybe 10% if you're lucky on actually developing your capacity and growing and now we're talking about flipping that model and for a lot of people they're terrified and very unconvinced that it can deliver value if you change the, the split in those two things. That's right, exactly. And, and everyone's linking things back to what we're paying them. So just because we're paying someone this amount, they have to be here for this time. You know, they're sort of making that connection, which I think is reasonably shallow when you look at the type of person that we're trying to create and are creating. So I think there's a, some work to be done in that space and just looking at what a professional athlete looks like and what their allocation of their time and their mental capacity is allowing them, you know. So... Mm. Uh, you know what we we want to produce at the end of it all too. Do we want to produce a you know an athlete that's just broken and has got nothing else to go to, or, or do we want to help people in their next phase? You know, there's there's many different components to this, but on a broad scale, I think there's some work to be done around that. I wanted to ask you what some of your biggest leadership takeaways were from your time at the helm of the Wallabies that you think has broader application to people that are leading in in other fields? Look, I think a big thing for me, a big learning for me was getting to know your teammates as well as you can. And when, when I came into the team, 
you probably think that you know people, but you actually don't. Mm. Uh, and I think that's probably the case for a lot of relationships, you know, around the workplace. And I think the better you can get to know someone and their background, what they believe in, what motivates them, the, the better you can then call on them under pressure in, you know, intense situations and, and things like that. So, you know, an example might be for me, uh, we had someone in the team who was consistently late for things. And when I was probably a bit younger as a leader, I would have just said, look, close the door and just don't let them in. But when I went and actually talked to that person and found a bit about their background, they had a huge amount of issues going on at home. It was causing them a lot of stress and, and they were just not making it in on time because of that. So when I understood that, I was able to work with them, you know, help them, not me, myself, all the time, but give them the right direction and, and work with the coaches around how we were going to make a plan and in the end we got a great outcome and, and got a great outcome with the player he, he made a massive contribution to the team and was a very valued member so that, that would be just a little example I suppose of of leaders getting to know their their people as well as they can and that can sound daunting when you're in a big organization but probably comes back to that example of just trying to meet some new people all the time so whether you say hello in a lift could be anyone you're talking to, you know, but the fact you've you've made the the decision to do that, they would know who you are, even though you might know them, but they know who you are. And if you make a, a conscious decision to engage someone like that, it can be very, very powerful. Reminds me of one of my favourite quotes that I've got on the wall of my office, seek first to understand before you seek to be understood. Just yes, changing yep. the way that you're looking at a situation, trying, as you did then, you know, going and talking to the person first before trying to work out how you get a different outcome out of the situation, you know, make sure they're arriving to the team meetings and training on time. You, yep. you would have gotten a, a fundamentally different outcome because you wanted to understand first rather than just, you know, as you said, imposing the rule from the get-go. That's right, exactly. And probably to flip that around a little bit, you know, someone I spoke to about leadership, just said you need to be 80% cheerleader and 20% iron fists. And I think, you know, that that is important as well. You need to know the right time to make it clear what the objectives are of the team. And if someone's not adhering to that or has done something wrong, you need to be able to identify that and have have those honest conversations. And I think sometimes we, we probably avoid that that confrontation but as a leader you need to be brave and courageous around having those conversations because that's why you're in that position really because you you've been identified as someone who can acknowledge that that something might not be right and that there needs to be a change so you know that that'd be something you know that I think is important and then the probably the third thing would be criticize privately and praise publicly that's something I think is very relevant in a lot of different areas. If you do have something you need to talk to someone about, I don't think many people like being dressed down in front of someone, you know. No. So wherever you can, take them in privately and, and you know, make that connection. And on the flip side, if, if someone has done something really good, then you need to stand up and shout it as loud as you can. And I imagine those for you were kind of core levers of the, driving the cultural change that you wanted to see amongst the squad. Yeah, that's right. And, and you know, I didn't probably read any textbook or anything like that and I don't think there's so many books and resources out there and, and you just take little bits along the way as you would have done by you know like you've said putting little quotes that resonate you know there's so many good 
uh, resources out there about leadership. And I think it's really important, probably coming back to right to the start of the conversation, to surround yourself with as many people as you can and, and ask questions and, and follow people and read things and watch things. And ultimately, you get a bit of a picture of how it will work best for you. And I think it's going to be different for everyone. Different leadership styles can work in different environments. And you know, all you can do is, is share what you think is, has worked for you and keep learning. I loved what you said when you retired. You said someone once said to me that ideally you want something to retire to and not from, and I think those are really wise words. How hard was the decision to retire and how did how did you know it was the right moment to do so? Yeah, that's, uh, I mean, everyone that I spoke to said that you wake up one day and you just know, and it probably goes back to maybe January or February if I'm being honest, and I remember Adam Gilchrist saying, the minute you start thinking about retirement, that's the time to retire. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I felt that I was close to being finished and I was just, I wasn't getting out of bed in the morning like what I've spoken about, really motivated and and uh, really keen to, to keep getting better. And, and I think that started to consume a bit of my thinking. And as soon as I got those feelings, I started to look at what was on the horizon started having conversations with some people around, you know, what I was going to do after rugby and, and those things started to materialise. And meanwhile, I was still obviously playing rugby and I was still enjoying it, still obviously very passionate about it. But there was just something there that I that had burnt out, I suppose, or that the candle was starting to flicker a little bit. And and I spoke to Michael Checker in July about it and I just said, I, I think I, I can't keep playing. I'm, I'm going to retire. So... He was very good about that. I think he understood and was. I had a year and possibly another year left on my contract. So I felt a little bit like I'd sort of walked away on that, but you know, he, he made me very comfortable that it was the right decision. And, and you don't want to be doing something uh, that you don't enjoy and, and you, mm-hmm. you're not really passionate about anymore. And, and there, you know, there's some young players coming through now that can carry the team forward. So we transitioned the leadership of the team over to Michael Hooper which I was very you know, proud to be part of and to see his growth and his development as a person has been really great you know, at the back end of my career. So, yeah, look, that, that was it really. And then in the background, obviously, my after-rugby stuff was starting to materialise and I just started to get excited about that. And, you know, I was really keen to, to get on with that part of my life as well. And I think it was a combination of those two things that ultimately made me very comfortable with the decision. Two final questions I want to ask you before we wrap up. I'm incredibly grateful for the amount of time that you've given us today and the generosity you've given us in sharing too. For those who are listening who aspire to be the best in whatever their chosen field of endeavour is, you rose to the absolute height of yours when it comes to the athletic side but also in captaining your country. What's the best bit of advice you could you could give them? You have to have a slight obsession with what you do to be the best. Uh, if you look at the best in any field, you have to have that level of obsession that other people don't have because you know the vast majority of people are just operating at the required level. And I think I, I spoke before about the thing of intrinsic motivation and discretionary effort and things like that. You have to be able to firstly give those yourself and then ask people around you to give that through a strong culture, a strong identity, a strong sense of purpose if you're a leader. So those things combined make you go over and above what the vast majority of people are doing and that's how you become the best and there's quite a few people operating in that little band so once again that comes down to detail and you know the one or two percent things 
But I really think that having that obsession with what you do is what drives you to get better. You keep reading about things, you keep learning, you become an expert at what you do and then ultimately you become the best if you do it often enough and and that's key as well. I mean, a lot of people shoot to the top and then fall down again straight away. Mm. Repeatedly doing the required things over and over is what really defines, you know, the best people, whether it's in sport or business and they're the people I really admire who have been able to do it repeatedly over a long period of time. Um, you know, that that's someone you think really is obsessed with what they do and obsessed about about being the best and and that's you know a lot of people probably relate the term obsession to be a negative thing I don't think it always is it just means you're really consumed in the right way about what you do and and that's that's you know something as I said that I've admired I love that and we, we haven't had anyone say that yet I think that's going to have real resonance with a lot of people out there just that commitment and that resolute focus that you're talking about that obsessiveness and I love that you mentioned consistency because I think that's such an important thing yes. we don't talk about often enough is you can't just do it once it's got to become something you repeatedly do yeah and probably the other thing to add to that is you don't always have to do it's not always a, the magical things or everyone can get there if you have that right level of obsession with what you're doing it's it's accessible to so many people you know it's i think a lot of people when they talk about being the best they they think it's only for a select few but it's actually comes down to that you know hard work obsession and just enjoyment with what you do every day to get to the, be the best and and you know for anyone out there don't think it's it's confined to a select few people like there's like a uh, a list of people that can be great you know that's not really how it works it's achievable for everyone if they want it enough and they're prepared to fail on the odd occasion completely and final question for those who are listening if you could encourage them to take any action step what, what would be the call to action that you'd like to leave them with Oh, geez, that's that's a tough one. I'll, I'll you know, I'll, I'll probably call on my experience, I suppose, and and something that I always tried to do and everything and still do is leave it better, leave it in a better place than than what you found it. You know, no matter what you're doing, and I think a great little example of that is a hotel room. So I've stayed in a lot of hotels uh, when I've travelled, and when I leave that hotel room. I always try and leave it you know, in a, close to the condition that I walked in because I just think that is a metaphor for, for your life. You know, If you can live by that type of thing and just make those little things a priority in your life, then you'll probably do more good than bad, I think, because it comes back to a lot of different things, humility. You know, Someone's going to have to walk into that room and clean it, so they're walking in and immediately they're thinking, geez, this is pretty good. Look, they've left it in a good good state and, and you feel good they feel good you've you've achieved something you've probably done something that no one else will see and that's important if you can do things for yourself and for your own motivation that you're not necessarily expecting anyone to see then i think that says a lot so it yeah, leaves a lot about your character doesn't it i think so i think just try and leave it in a better state than what you found it and that's pretty simple and you can apply it to a lot of different things so i think that's not a bad one I love that. And I love that, that that's so accessible for each and every one of us to think about in every interaction we have day in, day out. So thank you so much for 
how generously you've shared uh, the stories of your career, the advice that you've garnered, the lessons that you've learned. I know I speak for a lot of Australians that in saying that we were so proud to see you leading our team on the field and I'm so excited to think about the impact you're now going to have sharing your message throughout the world, working and applying the ideas and things that you've learned to drive change in business. And I look forward to seeing where your career evolves to next. But thank you so much for your time today. No problem, Holly. Thanks a lot. It's been really enjoyable actually to articulate some of that stuff. You know, as a leader, you don't often get to talk about it in this way. So I really enjoyed uh, the conversation and hopefully people that listen will get something out of it and I look forward to, to staying in touch. Thanks for listening. I hope you feel inspired and have some practical ideas for how you can go and fuel the difference you want to see in your life, organisation or community. If that's a yes, please take a moment to send us feedback Shoot me a tweet at Holly Ransom, leave a review for this coffee pod or head to www.coffeepodswithholly.com and send in your questions and suggestions for future coffee pods. But for now, until our next coffee break, I've been Holly Ransom. Thanks for fueling your difference with me.